Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by Kate Wolf, LARB's Editor-at-Large. Hi, Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. We've got actually a doubleheader for our show today. We have two conversations, the first of which will be Senior LARB Editor Janice Rochelle Littlejohn interviewing journalist and critic Linnell George about her new book, After Image, Los Angeles Outside the Frame. After we come back from our short break, we'll be speaking with Michelle Dean, author of Sharp, The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion. Both of these books were really interesting to me personally because I love Los Angeles. Right, and yeah. Linnell George loves Los Angeles and she mourns certain changes that are going on in the city right now in a way I found very moving and beautifully captured. And then, of course, Michelle's book is about, you know, I believe 12 writers. Yeah, um, it's a long list. Some of whom are my favorite writers. Yeah. You've lived in Los Angeles your whole life. What do you mourn about Los Angeles as you kind of oh, look at the changes in your own life? God, I'm a real broken record about this, but <laughs> a lot of the recent demolitions of beautiful architecture, mm. you know, unique to Los Angeles, even if they're small apartment buildings being replaced by these mega mansions, that's something yeah. I mourn very hard. And I think there are things about the city changing that seem political, things that are happening all over the world with gentrification in cities and rising rent costs, but then there are also things in LA that just seem small and personal to me, like restaurants closing or yeah, friends yeah. moving away. And those are, of course, just what happens when you stay in one place for long enough. Some of it seems really inevitable, but it's also just painful. And I think that's what people who have lived in Los Angeles for a really long time often experience because they can see the changes better than people who've moved here a couple of years ago. And Linnell, I think, is a lifelong Angelino, so she really can point them out as well. All right. Well, let's jump right to that conversation. And the next voice that you will hear will be that of senior editor Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with journalist and essayist Linnell George about her book, After Image, Los Angeles Outside the Frame. It's her first book of essays and photography exploring the native city. She is also the author of No Crystal Stair, African Americans in the City of Los Angeles, which is a compilation of features and essays drawn from her reportage. As a staff writer for both Los Angeles Times and the LA Weekly, Linnell's work has centered on social issues, human behavior, and identity politics, as well as visual arts, music, and literature. She is a contributing arts and culture columnist for KCET Artbound and is the contributor to numerous publications, including the Los Angeles Review of Books. Her liner notes for the compilation, Otis Redding Live at the Whiskey Agogo, the complete recordings, won a Grammy this year. And she's with us now to discuss After Image, Los Angeles Outside the Frame. Welcome, Linnell. Now, you've mentioned in some of the readings that you've had around the city that you didn't set out to write After Image. Can you explain how the book evolved? The book evolved, as I've been saying to people, that you know what a driveway moment is and where people are sitting and listening to the end of a story and there is some sort of epiphany that happens or a new thread. Well, for me, it was a gridlock moment. And it was being stuck in traffic on a two-hour commute for about three and a half years, two hours one way. And I started to wonder, why am I still in the city? This is 
so painful. And I wasn't having any moment. There was very little free time to be able to go out and explore the city. And so I made a pact with myself that I would start going back out and reconnecting with the city to see if there was any city left that I was still interested in. So while you've written about Los Angeles for much of your career, (laughs) and the people who dwell there, were there any particular challenges that you found about writing about this place and including your personal sense memories of Los Angeles as you were going through it? I think really trying to let, make sure that nostalgia did not get in my way of being able to experience the here and now Los Angeles. And that was really the struggle. You know, I am a native. I have lived outside of the city only once for an extended period of time. And so I have very strong opinions (laughs) about what I feel like is missing and what I'd want more of. And I really had to let go of some of my sentimentality. So I didn't want the book to be sentimental, but also even more so, I didn't want the book to feel like it was defensive and I was defending or in conversation with people about, well, it's not this, it's this. I really wanted to write about what is the here and now Los Angeles? What was the Los Angeles I grew up in, but what is it now? Okay. Was that difficult to let go of that sentimentality? Yes, I found it was. (laughs) It really was because, you know, every corner, even though there's so much gone, I remember what's gone. And so there's conversations that go on in my head and with the people. I didn't want it just to be my memories. I wanted to include other people. So people I found and I was talking to, they had strong opinions about what was here and what was gone as Mm -hmm. well. So trying to kind of plow through that. And this is also your first book that features photographs that you have taken around the city. Can you talk a little bit about how the photography plays into the book? And those are really stories within themselves. Yes. One of the things I had decided to, and it wasn't that I made the decision like right away, it evolved. I would go out early Sunday mornings when the city was emptier, so really empty and really early. And I would just go and pick a neighborhood and park my car and take a walk. And then the walks got longer, and I had a notebook. And then I started realizing, oh, I'm finding features of the places that remind me of something or a piece of, like, things that you would think were gone, like old incinerators. Like, in, like I'd forgotten about the fact that we used to have backyard incinerators, you know, when I was a kid. And I think they weren't even used then. But things like that that I thought, wow, that is really a badge of the past. So that's why I wanted to start documenting these things that I thought, they're going to be gone soon. Hmm. Well, you know, it was interesting because in the introduction of the book, you write, I seem to have lost Los Angeles. It is as if the city were a set of keys I've somehow misplaced. I keep frantically retracing my steps, hoping to locate it, something lost and must be found. In fact, the second chapter is titled Lost Angelina. I'm wondering... Was this your journey to find the L.A. you'd lost? And what did you find? It was more to find this sense of L.A. that was so important to me. And it really is the interactions that we used to have as Angelinos. And it was, you know, there's always been a lot of sparkle dust around Los Angeles, (laughs) you know. But there was also a realness and an ease and this sort of, like, people reaching out. And I always refer to this as the across the fence Los Angeles. And people would share things and share their fruit, you know, that they Mm -hmm. grew in their gardens or 
my parents, you know, they had neighbors that would bake pies and bake cakes for them, even up until really recently, and bring them over on the, the holidays. There was this this quality of neighborhoodness about L.A., and I was looking for that, along with all the other things, the light and the space and um, these scents. But yeah, there were there are patches of it that I was able to uncover. And you do talk a lot about your parents and their dreams. Can you talk a little bit about their coming to Los Angeles, what they found here? And are you finding something different now? Or are you a just a product of the dream? They came for both of them for opportunity, and they came from separate places. My mom is a Southerner from New Orleans, and so she was leaving Jim Crow segregation for opportunity. My dad was a Northerner, and his brother had, his eldest brother, he was one of seven, my dad, the youngest, had decided that this was the land of opportunity. They were part of the Great Migration. Mm -hmm. They were coming on out here, you know, because that's what, you know, black people were doing. And so we're going to come out and see what's here for us. So their dream was really about dreaming as large as you could. And of course, there were hindrances to that. And, you know, LA was not perfect, you know, restrictive housing covenants, etc. But you know, when I think about their dream and what I inherited, I think I inherited their sense, their sense of hope. And that's the thing, whenever I get frustrated, I have to remember, they gave up a lot to be here. You need to be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) And like, you need to like, you need to turn your engine up a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. rev it up a little bit more sometimes. I really love the quote that you chose for the beginning of the book from Octavia E. Butler's Mm -hmm. Notebook. And as a 2017 recipient of the Huntington Library's fellowship, you were able to delve into Butler's archives a lot last year, and they were on display at the library. How has Butler's books and, and delving into that part of her life and career and her writing and her notes on Los Angeles influenced or contributed to your own urgency to share stories about Los Angeles. The beauty of being in the archive is you really do get a sense of what it's like to be a writer. Mm. I mean, somebody who has really dedicated herself to writing. It is the front and center portion of her life. And she had odd jobs. She did everything from being a potato chip inspector to answering customer service calls to cleaning. She struggled to get to where she was, to get to being Octavia Butler, recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. And I think the thing that, you know, people think about writing is that, oh, it's magic. You just go home and you like, you know, zip this stuff out and you see how difficult it was and how many drafts it took. And she'd get up in the dark of the morning to work. And I think for me as a writer, it was confirmation again of like, you know, you pick this path. It is not simple and it is not quick. And she paved a way for someone like me. Now, one of my favorite chapters in the book is also one of the earliest ones, Arteries of Memory. Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about 
what is now referred to as South L.A. Mm -hmm. It's also where I grew up. And like you describe in the essay, it's where I learned to drive and navigate (laughs) myself around the city. (laughs) But I wanted to talk to you in this piece. You also unfold the history of the place and the gangs that rooted Mm -hmm. and grew up from the uprisings in, in the 1960s, the businesses that have come and gone, the politics of progress, mm-hmm. and what was left of Santa Barbara Plaza before mm-hmm. it now is the Kaiser Permanente facility. Right. But this story, like so many others in the book, really gives a picture of how the city has evolved in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you think the city is evolving for the better. Hmm. I think in certain ways, yes. I mean, to be able to have a Kaiser Permanente right in the neighborhood Absolutely, yes. And to try to get things, you know, upgraded that haven't been, you know, like, you know, that neighborhood, when I was growing up, there were two or three markets, for example, in shopping centers, you know, then for years, there was none, none, mm-hmm. decades, none, then one came up, and then one went away. And, and, <laughs> and so this sort of like, repeating this sort of like, you know, how loud do we have to yell for progress and for things to be um, equitable? So, yeah, so there's some things that just take longer to happen. And I just wish, you know, and this is a larger and longer conversation, but that residents were, you know, part of some of these planning decisions that are made, the people who have kind of suffered through lack of amenities Mm -hmm. for decades, you know, and suddenly when there's a new wave of people coming in and suddenly things are are getting better and like, well, we've been waiting for a long time for that to happen. Exactly. Well, you know, and that you talked a little bit earlier about community. The essays also open up to your personal experiences of your family and the cultural influences that have opened you up to living in Los Angeles. How do you think that has really impacted your life and your work? Because there's such a diversity, not only in culture, but in class and the people that you tell like stories of your kids that you grew up with that were not the same as you. Can you talk a little bit about how that has influenced your decisions and like the journey that you've taken in your journalism? I really think it is what made me a journalist in so many ways because I lived in this place that was so diverse And because we happened to be in two neighborhoods that were experiencing white flight, (laughs) which meant that the people who were moving in were literally from all over the world, all over the world, spoke all kinds of different languages. And that over-the-fence Los Angeles that I speak of, the, the people invited me in and to have their food and to eavesdrop on conversations sometimes when I wasn't supposed to. Um, (laughs) But read their books and learn about their culture and where they came from. And a lot of people were fleeing, you know, war-torn countries or persecution. And so I learned a lot about why people were here. You know, you grow up reading about LA and it's, oh, you know, I want to be a star. You know, I want to be a writer. I want to be a director. And these were people who were just, I just want to live a life where I'm not running from something and someone, mm-hmm. and I want to be able to build. And I think hearing those stories from a very, very young age and being friends with people who had given up so much to be here, it made me want to tell their stories and hear more of those stories. So, yes, that is how L.A. has marked me. It's made me want to be out in the world, and it's made me much more inquisitive and aware 
the words gentrification have been buzzing around this city for more than a few years, mm-hmm. and residents and business districts are starting to change both in color and in attitude. Why are the changes and redevelopment in Los Angeles different here than it might be in other places like, say, New Orleans, where you've spent a lot of time mm-hmm. exploring as well? Right. It's interesting. I'm seeing the same sorts of things in that, you know, you see the first the first waves, of the first things that we see. And of course, things start earlier than that. And that's what I do talk about in the book is that the things that we first see, the little cafes that open or the little galleries that open, something has happened before that to allow that to happen. And there has been, just like here in LA, there's a flattening to the culture that in with New Orleans, it's to me, it's because I've been going there since I was a kid. And it always felt like being in another country when I went there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's and not just a two-hour time zone difference. I mean, I really was like, <laughs> would always feel like jet lagged. Okay, there's an accent and a pace and a rhythm to life there that I always have to adjust to, and that's still there. But there are some places I was there in this last trip just a couple of weeks ago where I just thought I could be in LA right now, and people around me were from all these other places where they always have been. You know. New Orleans is a port city. Like LA, you know, it's a place, it's a magnet. But this is the first time where I felt like, oh, this little business I'm in, it could be in Portland, it could be in Los Angeles, it could be in San Francisco. There was nothing that felt like New Orleans about it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I sometimes feel here, is that these things come up that don't, they're not celebrating the culture of the city. And they feel like they could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that concerns me about sense of place. Well, you know, it's interesting because one of the book signings that you had at Esawan recently, someone posed a question about you had encouraged people to write down their stories yeah, and tell, tell their, their stories, stories and yeah. photograph things. And someone said, well, you know, the city has always mm-hmm. evolved. And there were people that might have thought mm-hmm oh, there goes the neighborhood mm-hmm. when blacks and Latinos started moving further west. Right. I'm wondering what's particular about what's happening now? Why is the urgency now to really tell these stories? What's being lost if we don't talk about where we came from and where we're trying to go? I really think the struggle for place is the one that I worry about the most. And as I talk to artists and, you know, people who are really trying to, like, in some way preserve stories, it's this idea that we struggle to be here, to have this spot. And and all the things that happened here took time. And we took care of our neighborhoods. And we took care of our gardens. And we took care of our people. It wasn't just blight. It wasn't just a ghost town. It wasn't just a mess. And that's what ends up happening. Like People end up telling your story for you hmm. if you do not tell it yourself. And that's why I tell people, you tell that story because someone else is going to move in here and they're going to have a different version of what they occupy. Hmm. And that's not acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> amen. And, amen. <laughs> I've had this book now for about a month, and I recently reread the essay that you wrote, Urban Wild, in the book, (laughs) and it features all of the terrains that we move in throughout the city, and I'm planning to host a friend from New York recently, and she was talking about wanting to do all the things that you can't do other than being in L.A., like hiking in the mountains, going to the beaches, visiting soap makers' shops, and (laughs) then hitting the museums. 
and then we're going to go to a Hollywood premiere, right? Only one day. Only one afternoon. And so, but we do have, and you spoke to this before, but we do have such a varied landscape here. And that really has shaped culture here and the people who reside here. How do you think it makes Angelina, like the physical place, how mm-hmm. does it make us different or you unique? Know, you know, I think about this idea that, you know, you can have like a very urban experience and then be able to, and this is the thing that I loved as a child. And then as a teen is that people would say to me like, oh, LA is not a real city. And it used to really like upset me. I'm like, we are our own city. We are just a different definition of what a city is. But I love the idea that when there wasn't as much traffic, you could, all of the city could be mine. So I could spend part of my day in the arts district, which I did in the 80s. And I was going to school college out near the airport and I could go all the way out there and be there and be in Venice and have a very at that point Venice was very funky and bohemian and edgy and it still is in places but have that experience too and I I am defined by all of those different spaces and it's the thing that I worry about going away too because when you could have all of that and call all of that yours and you were marked by that. But if you were, if we were stuck in these little boxes and we can't get out, then you can't be all of those different things and you can't see all of those different Los Angeleses. And so that, that wildness, I want to cross into it just Mm -hmm. like the Pumas. I want to be able to cross over the freeway and be together with people. And that to me is the beauty of being in this place, Mm -hmm. big and wild and unpredictable. I like that. <laughs> Big, wild, and unpredictable. Yes. That's going to be my new intention for there you go. this year. <laughs> Big, wild. Yes, and right. <laughs> so in the essay flow, you mentioned how there are many Los Angeleses, both physically and in states of mind. Mm-hmm. How would you describe your personal <laughs> Los Angeles, either physically or the way you live in it? I am still a wanderer. Even though it is really difficult to do it, it is imperative. So I guess in my state of mind, that's what I see myself as. And then physically, I'm still trying to carve out shortcuts and roundabouts and throughways because I want I want to feel the urban beat of the city, the music that kind of filters through. I love to listen to people's stories. So I want to make space and time to be able to hear those things because that's what makes me feel part of a place. And so if it takes a little extra arm wrestling to do it, I guess I'm still going to try to do it as frustrated as I get with this place. (laughs) But my LA is, it's vivid. Mm. Yeah, I want that vivid terrain. Great. Well, Linnell, thank you so very much for coming and talking to us about After Image, hey. Los Angeles Outside the Frame. And have a great rest of your week. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in Studio City. You've been listening to a conversation between Janice Rochelle Littlejohn and Linnell George, author of After Image, Los Angeles Outside the Frame. We now turn to our conversation with Michelle Dean, author of Sharp, The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion.
We're excited to have journalist and critic Michelle Dean with us in the studio today. Michelle is a contributing editor at The New Republic, whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Nation, The New York Times Magazine, Slate, and many other publications. Her first book, Sharp, The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion, was published in April by Grove Press. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you. Tell us who the women are that you're writing about. Oh, sure. Of course. So there are actually 10 of them that are sort of the main threads of the book. And it starts with Dorothy Parker, Rebecca West, um, Mary McCarthy, Hannah Arendt, and then Susan Sontag, Pauline Kael, Joan Didion, or Nora Ephron, Renata Adler, and Janet Malcolm. I think I got all 10 there. And uh, and yeah, so it was quite a crew. But gradually, as I started to read deeper into their catalogs and read every biography that was available, the threads just kept getting thicker and thicker, and that gradually blossomed into this book. And you, so the book is structured kind of around this relay of them passing connecting, let's say, yes. as opposed to larger themes that you could write about with all of them. But you, you're, they, they recur, these characters. So maybe you could tell us about some of the main connections that are featured in the book. Like some are familiar. We all know Mary McCarthy was, you know, very friendly with Hannah Arendt. But tell us mm-hmm. more about the different connections that might surprise us. Well, for example, Renata Adler was engaged to Mary McCarthy's son at one point. Oh. Um, yeah, and Susan Sontag pursued Hannah Arendt at some point, w- hoping that she would become a close friend and mentor, and it didn't really work out. In fact, actually, Adler <laughs> sort of more became that figure. Mm. Dorothy Parker was was sort of a person that Mary McCarthy often felt she had to shake off because people, you know, often portrayed her as being in that tradition. <laughs> Mary McCarthy only met her once and calls her dumpy um, <laughs> when she describes the experience. Um, so, you know, the, the connections were um, both sometimes ephemeral and sometimes thick and that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but yeah, they, and, and the connections are actually sometimes thematic in that, um, you know, I actually, in, in some of D- Dorothy Parker's early work, I see a lot, or I saw a lot in this one piece called Interior Desecration, where she sounded a lot like Janet Malcolm, actually. I mean, it's this, the piece is probably satirical um, and made up, but there's something about the way that she is, she's walking into a place and examining the surroundings and judging this interior decorator that she describes that is very reminiscent of what Janet would come mm. to do later. And so they were also unified in a certain kind of perspective on things. Speaking of that, actually, can we circle back to the question of feminism? Because they have an often, I guess, ambivalent would be the right mm-hmm. word. Um, Some of them uh, kind of on both sides, both disavowing women's liberation or then kind of recasting how they felt about it. So what did feminism mean to these women who are also spanning, we should say, like the first two thirds easily of the 20th century? Well, I think feminism meant a lot of different things to them in the way that it means a lot of different things to us. Sure. Um, You know, it didn't exclusively mean the suffragette movement and it didn't exclusively mean the second wave movement. But when I'm talking about their ambivalence towards feminism, I'm usually talking about their ambivalence towards movement politics Mm, in that um, for lots of reasons, these women viewed themselves as individuals. And as individuals, that meant that they were sometimes a little bit touchy about having to be pulled into a group. And so identified almost all the women in the book, except 
for Hannah Arendt, eventually came to either accept feminism or repudiate certain critiques of feminism, which is what happened in Didion's case, for example, Mm. that they'd make later. They'd talk about it later. But in all cases, what it seemed like they were reacting to was the idea that their individuality would have to be flattened into this movement, which I think that actually, if you looked at the perspectives of people who were actually within these movements, within, you know, the suffragette movement, and particularly actually in the second uh, in the second wave movement, they might say, well, I didn't find it flattening at all. I found it liberating. But I'm just saying from the perspective of the people in the book, that was their relationship to it. And yet your argument in the book is that these women were implicitly good for feminist politics. Um, Can you explain why that is or how do you think that is? Well, I think that in general, the assertion of a, of a voice and the assertion of a, of a place for argument um, in, in the world, meaning uh, rather than agreement or a kind of rote recitation of solidarity with all women, is actually something that has a place in feminism and, and, and a usefulness for feminism, even if it doesn't involve some kind of explicit sort of, I don't know, alignment with the movement. It has to be more than simply calling yourself feminist. Something that is interesting to me in the book is the amount of rivalry that exists. <laughs> We're saying the these women intersect, but you yeah. also described a little bit already the rivalry between them yeah. that because as though there could only be one woman writer that often it's like, oh, Sontag's the new McCarthy. Yeah. Like, um, what do you think about that? And tell us more about the depth of rivalry between them, because that's another thing that would seem, you know, somewhat anti-feminist if it, if you can't accept your fellow women writer and you just want right. to take them down immediately. Well, I think one of the things I found as I as I delved deeper into the book that was that I didn't know exactly how clear these rivalries were for the women who were allegedly involved in them. And McCarthy Sontag is actually a pretty good example of something where, you know, Susan has said repeatedly that she had heard that Mary McCarthy had been at some party and said, this is the new me. But nobody actually reports the specific circumstances of that happening. And there's some doubt in Sontag's comments, or she leaves some open some doubt to the idea that it ever actually really happened. To a certain extent, I think the rivalries are also constructed by other people. However, I don't know, I, you know, maybe maybe this is just me. I don't know that I necessarily define rivalry with another female intellectual as a, or, or competition or disagreement or even even outright dislike as necessarily anti-feminist, right? Yeah, yeah. and yeah. and I think that's that's actually like one of the things that came to sort of was the reason why I came to say that I felt that they, these women had a feminist effect, even if it wasn't intended. In that, I think sometimes sisters are actually fight. Um, of course, it doesn't make them any less sisters. Well, I think also you know being able to take someone else's work seriously yes. um, and critique it. Yeah. on its own merits is really important. Some an, an incident in the book that I found upset, well, <laughs> <laughs> I, that I would have been very demoralized by was the case of McCarthy and um, someone who you don't write much about is uh, Elizabeth Hardwick. Hardwick. And Elizabeth Hardwick made a parody of uh, McCarthy's book, The Group. That's right. Um, and also commissioned Norman Mailer to write what is definitely a pretty hideously sexist um, review uh, <laughs> of the book, no matter what you think of it, because I think I think it's fair to not like the book. But, um, I mean, that was complicated, too, in that, you know, Hardwick and, and McCarthy didn't speak for years, but then came back together, actually, later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it is, um, it is frustrating. And I, I don't know that it was totally defined by feeling there could only be one woman. When somebody is actually your friend and you read their book and you don't like it, 
I can see that you might go through a whole host of conflicted emotions that would lead you to, to do the thing that Elizabeth Hardwick did, which is to at first tell McCarthy that you liked the book, which she did, and then to write a really brutal parody of it and publish it. It's still a little bit beyond my ken to understand the actual publication of it. The way that she explained it to McCarthy was like, it was intended as a little joke. Um, and perhaps she was relying on an argument I've heard before, which is that parody can sometimes only be um, achieved if you have some affection for the subject in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary didn't really buy that. Um, and I'm not sure she, she needed to. I think it would have been, you know, very disheartening. But I also think, you know, some of the reason that aggression explodes into something like that or feelings of aggression or dislike or whatever, however you want to define or qualify this, it happens because women feel like they can't just say, I don't like your book, right? Um, (laughs) Or, you know, it wasn't for me. Um, It's difficult. And of course, it's difficult between authors and there's lots of levels going on. And it it seems to me that if, if there was a healthier model for conflict among women, genuine felt conflict, then you wouldn't have you wouldn't find people doing such strange things out of what was clearly a burst of repressed emotion. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm wondering, what do you think? Because there's a way in which the array of, of writers that you provide to us, mm-hmm. um, they feel like they're kind of part of any 20th century American women's writing syllabus, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, to a certain extent, like, what do these figures offer a feminism, a contemporary feminism, which is like, it seems to me in some ways, like both broader than the kind of survey here, Mm -hmm. but also engaged with, um, you know, the word of the day is intersectional, right? That it's uh, there, these women are not really thinking that much about race. Um, there, we should also say, which you acknowledge in the preface, yes. that they're all white women. Mm-hmm. So I guess kind of like, you know, how do you think like, I, I was just thinking about this this morning. It's like, how, you know, how would somebody like a young activist like Emma Gonzalez, for example, like who is she reading? Is she reading Dorothy Parker? Is she reading Rebecca West? She might be reading Sontag or Steinem, you know, like, so what are those kind of currents and what is that or contemporary right. Jezebel writers, for example, like, you know, how do these this um, kind of cache of authors, like how do they respond to contemporary feminist questions? Well, it's very hard to, to answer how they would respond, but I can say what I think they have to offer. Which sure, is, that's more that, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> My sense is that contemporary feminism is fraught with a lot of different cleavages, you know, and some of them are are a result of arguments about intersectionality and about what it actually demands of us that we do. I think one of the things that I took away from this book, which you've talked about a little bit already, is the notion that conflict can actually be kind of generative Mm. um, and it can be energizing. Um, You know, there is sort of a lot of energy in this book, considering that I'm talking about reviews they wrote of things that people don't really remember. Um, Just a lot of intellectual activity and that kind of energy is something that can be enormously useful for the movement, I think. And I think what what goes on right now, it's not that people are afraid of argument. There's certainly plenty of argument in feminism. And one of my favorite things that the right wing does is try to accuse feminists of groupthink, because if you spent five minutes in a feminist right. meeting, you right. know very well that it's not, it's not like everybody braiding each other's hair as the dominant metaphor would have it. <laughs> but I think that there could be an improvement in terms of us all actually 
acknowledging these conflicts and dealing with them, um, because it seems to me that they get subsumed. I mean, one of the accusations about the word ex- intersectionality, and I don't necessarily agree with this accusation, but one of the accusations is that it's become like a kind of rhetorical club in that um, people bring it up and then it's difficult to have the conversation any further. Like, I want my feminism to be intersectional. Having the conversation, well, what does that actually mean and what does it demand of us as feminists? It's something that I think that actually, yes, contemporary feminism could use more of that deeper conversation um, rather than simply saying this thing is not intersectional. Okay, so then what is? And that's going to require some argument and some disagreement. And the reason that we kind of shy away from it is we worry that we're we're somehow devaluing the ideal of intersectionality if we interrogate it any further after it comes up. Mm. And actually, my sense is that contemporary feminism would be a lot richer if we kept pushing things. And these women kept pushing things, sometimes right off the cliff for themselves, you know, like the book, yes, all these are white women. I did try to talk about their racial blind spots, in particular, Hannah Arendt's. And remind us what that was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hannah Arendt was against school desegregation, which, you know, is something that almost never gets spoken of when she's brought up in contemporary culture, um, because it was such a massive error that people don't really know what to say about it. And I think, you know, a lot of it, and frankly, it's too complicated to elucidate too clearly here. Um, You know, she was taken to task for it by Ralph Ellison, and I think came around to seeing that, in fact, she had missed a great deal of what was necessary to analyze the problem. However, that was after she had published a polemic against it, and she never published a corrective, Mm. right? Um, And, you know, one of the things that this book stands for, and I know that I'm stealing this term from somewhere, and I just, today, it's not at my fingertips, but it's sort of outsider epistemology, is the idea that people who are not within the system have something to offer the system. Um, And so one of the things that um, I, I think that these sharp women sort of offered was proof that you can influence the culture even when you're outside it, even when you receive a lot of sexist pushback or, you know, pushback from the dominant group. Right. I guess, you know, the argument against that would be that most of these women were, you know, despite the fact that they were women at a time where it was harder to work as a woman mm-hmm. writer, but they were, um, a lot of them were at the center of the culture. I mean, they were mm-hmm. all working Didion, for like yeah. really big New York, except mm-hmm. for Rebecca, but even Rebecca West at a certain point, you write, mm-hmm. was started to work for the New Republic. They were all working yeah. within um, predominant media. Mm-hmm. So so that's the interesting thing about them is that, and, uh, and I wonder, you don't go too much into this in the book, but how they're being women would how do you think? I mean, I know it's a, it's such a large question. You can't possibly. <laughs> but how do you think? Since they were all so focused on themselves as writers foremost, you have this great exchange with um, Zontag and Mailer at the town hall at the mm-hmm. bloody town hall uh, with that great movie. But yeah, um, yeah. where she's basically yeah, saying, you know, why do you call us? lady writers, a woman writer is only slightly better, but I think probably most of them would want to have just been called writers, you know, um, and wouldn't have the kind of relationship to female writing that French feminists like more, you know, that would have had, or they weren't thinking about themselves as women writing. But how do you think their being women um, affected the way their writing was received? How do I think it affected it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think that, first of all, I don't think that women have have some innate quality in their writing, which is biologically driven. Mm -hmm. But I do think as a result of their social position, for example, their criticism was constructed as mean in many ways. Right. Um, You know, when they said something, they're all spoken of at, at various times as being somehow vicious. 
instead of, you know, engagement was just read as, as viciousness, no matter how it was phrased or put. And so I think, you know, yes, their position as women um, inflected how they were received in part because men also had overwhelmingly negative reactions to them sometimes, you know, like Janet Malcolm when she comes out with the journalist and the murderer, which has a first line questioning some of the ethics and values of journalism, turns to, you know, turns into somebody who's trying to destroy journalism in, in the eyes of her male critics, which is sort of surprising. It's surprising to read the word that way, or the the way that she used that rhetorical flourish at the beginning of the book that way. So, you know, it, it, it cuts both ways in that you get to be the exceptional one, you get to be the one that people want to listen to because you're not like everybody else. But yeah, you also end up with an exceptional amount of pushback. Mm-hmm. One uh, thread that I was interested in that's not totally explored that much in the book, but there's a little bit about it, is motherhood. Most of these women, I believe, were single mothers, Mm -hmm. if they had children at all. Rebecca West, Pauline Kael, Susan Sontag. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Is that something you noticed when you were researching, um, that a particular relationship to being a mother and being a writer, having children, anything? I mean, that would also kind of dovetail with the feminist argument of um, how did they approach their their roles as mothers? I mean, I think it's tricky, right? Because I don't, um, in, in, certainly there's a, there's a case to be made that at least West, Sontag, and yeah, I mean, and Kale all had children who had issues with their parenting. Um, it, but it's so difficult for me in the lives of writers in general to parse that um, as a specific function of their being writers or artists or focused on their own uh, on their own endeavors as opposed to being mothers. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's because uh, <laughs> this, is, this is unnecessarily personal, but I had a mother who wished she worked out of the home more than she did, um, you know, and right. was unhappy for that reason. So I, I guess like what I'm saying is I'm reluctant to draw, and this is probably why it's not explored as clearly in the book as, as maybe some people might like to. I'm reluctant to draw a lot of conclusions about what function motherhood had on their work or whether they were good mothers because of their work or bad mothers because of their right, work. Right. Um, and I worry that almost anything that, that addresses um, that aspect of their lives is going to turn into that, whether you mean it to or not. Because certainly, so to talk about somebody who's long dead, Rebecca West, you know, son hated her. Well, she pretended not to be his mother. Yeah, she did. Right? Yeah, she did. Um, <laughs> and I think was also very ambivalent about right. motherhood. She, like she became accidentally pregnant at 19, which is an experience, especially when you are a middle class, like, I don't know, her class position is a bit strange, but a middle class girl in, in England um, when it couldn't be public. Right. right? Um, because it was by a married man by H.G. Wells. So, yeah, I mean, you know, he he felt angry because of that. But I, I just feel uncomfortable, I guess, is, is the real word. Um, and in, in making a sort of moral judgment about it. And it feels like no matter what you do here, if you say it did or didn't affect the work, you are making a kind of moral judgment about it. So, yeah. All right. Well, I think we're going to have to end there. We've been speaking with Michelle Dean, author of Sharp, The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion. Thanks so much for joining us, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you. The publishing industry is undergoing a momentous revolution, and the Los Angeles Review of Books USC Publishing Workshop can prepare you to be part of that exciting future. 
During an immersive five-week summer program, participants will be instructed in the varied aspects of digital and print publishing through real-world hands-on experience by our faculty and lecturers representing companies such as Red Hen Press, Time Inc., Simon & Schuster, Yale University Press, FSG, Harriet Tubman Press, University of California Press, and many other literary agents, publicists, and marketing agencies. The workshop is now accepting applications for the 2018 session, which will be held from June 24th through July 27th at the USC campus in downtown Los Angeles. For more information, including details on scholarships and other funding opportunities, please visit the workshop website at thepublishingworkshop.com. That's thepublishingworkshop.com. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour.